Hello, I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 Certified in Wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And this is Laid Back Lush, a little podcast that we do where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits, and kind of explore different topics within those various genres. Indeed. 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 So we do have to apologize that we had a little bit of a hiatus yet again. Because I had to move yeah. again, very unexpectedly. Life happens life, sometimes. Life does happen. Uh, but we are back at it again. We had a lot of discussion yes. about what we should be doing because our last episode was our anniversary episode. Yeah. Go listen to it if you haven't yet. If you have not yet. And we wanted to get more into some liquors because we actually have not spoken about a lot of them. We've spoken about whiskey. We've mm-hmm. spoken about... Uh, mezcal, mezcal yeah. um, but gin. gin. There is such a diverse playing field when it comes to different types of distilled alcohols that we really wanted to get into them. And one of the ones that we hadn't had a chance to really educate ourselves on was the one that we're going to be talking about today, which would you like to introduce our topic for the day? Yes. Well, you might have heard of a little thing called rum. Rum? In, in your drinking journeys. I mean, that makes me a little uh, berummaged. <laughs> so, well, what, what, what is this liquid that you speak of? Well, rum is an interesting liquor in that it can be a light liquor or a dark liquor. It is made from distilled sugarcane product, I'll Very say that. Very speaking. Yeah. Um, so, most commonly, that will be molasses for most styles of rum. We will be going over the exceptions to that rule later on. It can be made from cane sugar juice as well. But very broadly speaking, it is a distilled product made from pretty much any sort of sugar cane product. Yes. So going a little bit into the history of rum. Oh, we, boy. Uh, we, Yet uh, again. <laughs> yeah. We, we just keep running into a certain topic. But before we get to that... There's kind of some precursors to rum mm-hmm. that were discovered in India and China, where they were using sugar cane and typically something like honey or uh, rice or kind of other starches to help that fermentation along. So it was kind of rum, but it was also not quite what we think of as it wasn't pure rum, quote unquote, I guess I'll say that. It was kind of like a, you could even see it as a, a prototype for exactly for rum. So these drinks have existed for a while, but then we move to the Caribbean. Yeah. And we move to our favorite historical figure, Christopher Columbus, yet again. <sighs> so sugarcane was introduced by Christopher Columbus on his first, ex- was it his first or his second exploration? I believe it was his second exploration. Okay. Yeah. Um, because initially they were trying right. to find rhubarb. Yes. Yeah. So he ended up bringing sugarcane. There's some debate over um, which island this happened on first, but um, as we know, Christopher Columbus brought slavery, unfortunately, to yes, the Caribbean, did. very uh, abhorrent tradition that he seemed to be very keen on. And the slaves that he was using in the Caribbean were primarily working for sugarcane yeah. production. Sugarcane was a very hot commodity in Europe. Yeah, especially since... You know, this was around the same time that you were seeing that tea boon that we talked about in yeah. our gin episode. And, well, the tea that they were getting was typically not the highest quality due to the fact that it was having to travel so far. Yeah, exactly. So they would sweeten it with sugar. Yeah. And so especially they needed a steady import 
of crystallized sugar, which is only obtained through the growth and then the boiling of sugarcane juice. Yes. And this ended up having a lot of different byproducts. Most of them were considered uh, waste, specifically molasses. Yep. But then a very smart group of people who were working for what one could say was unfair wages, in that they did not receive wages, they decided that they were going to try and make something out of this discarded product. Yeah. And that's loosely how we ended up discovering, or how rum was discovered. Yeah. And so... There was some alcoholic production methods in the Caribbean predating Columbus, but um, he did bring a lot of distilling. Well, the Spaniards in general, I guess, brought a lot of distilling knowledge and supplies in particular with them. So that's kind of what's thought to be what inspired the slaves that ended up making rum or inventing rum to put the molasses in and just kind of see what happened. Now, the earliest that I was able to find was uh, in Barbados. Were you mm-hmm. able? Were you finding anything that conflicted with that while you're doing your research? There's an island called Nevis in the Caribbean, and people claim that's where the very first molasses distillation into rum occurred. It is pretty that's, hard to determine. It's though. debated, um, especially so. since so many groups they like to have the birthplace yeah. of rum as their tagline in marketing. Yeah. I could not find any concrete documentation about Nevis, but that is kind of a broad belief, I guess I'll say. Yeah, but all that to say that this was a practice that ended up becoming popularized in the Caribbean. Yeah. And so we know that from at at least one of those places, you ended up seeing this method Mm -hmm. where molasses was fermented typically with some form of ambient yeast. Yeah. Which meant that it was a slower process. That's kind of the only way they could ferment it at the time. Exactly. And then it became kind of like a molasses wine, which they then used basic pot stills Mm -hmm. in order to distill into a, a more than likely dark exactly uh, dark rum product weirdly enough though that's not the most popularized uh, or popularly exported rum product Mm -hmm. because i always think of rum as being that darker product but because of the fact that you have it being mixed into things like mojitos and a bunch of these different cocktails it's actually the clear rum that's the more popular one yeah That actually surprised me because, for me, I'm, like, always about that rum. Unfortunately, if you're in the state of Virginia, then we don't have – we don't have – The best selection. Yeah, and also we have liquor being sold out of ABC stores rather than regular places. So during my time as an alcohol salesman, I actually didn't get any sort of experience in the type of sales to be expected from liquor yeah so that that fact actually really surprised me yeah a lot of people don't think of at least non you know liquor enthusiasts tend to think of rum as more of a mixing ingredient like you were saying i think than a actual standalone drink in and of itself so which is really weird but getting back to the history yeah originally it was actually not called rum Originally, it was called Kill Devil because of how strong and kind of wild yeah. it tasted at the time, which uh, some was of considered these, really rough. Yeah, some of these styles actually still kind of maintain that tradition today, but we'll get to that later. What was the, the, and the other name for it was Rum Bouillon. Yes. So eventually, um, this came from the French, I believe. It was called Rum Bouillon or Rum Bastion, I believe is how you pronounce it, which mean upheaval or violent commotion. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, people getting rowdy while drinking, makes a lot of sense why you would call it that. 
you know, and then that got shortened to rum. Yeah. And so it, it, it's it's really interesting because you had the timeline for this. It was like around 1650 is when you have the first evidence of rum popping up being called Kill Devil or Rum Bouillon. And then within the span of 10 years, it gets shortened to rum. Yeah. And then you also see the seafaring language of berummaged, meaning confused, yeah. crop up within the, the nomenclature. Yeah. Which is just really fantastic when you think about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like uh, going back to our Jin episode, how, you know, Yennefer and Jennifer and then Jin. It's just like, I'm definitely not saying rum bouillon when i'm drunk and asking for alcohol i'm just gonna yeah. go ahead and say rum. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and uh this is kind of thought to be the first spirit in this part of the world that was drunk for something other than a medicinal purpose because as we've talked about particularly in our gen episode um a lot of older even wine was commonly used for medicinal purposes rather than drinking for pleasure because a lot of times especially in the ancient world these beverages didn't taste particularly good but they were thought to help you know, clear things out and yeah. whatnot. And you would mix them with certain types of herbs. Yes. You know, which, again, we talked about in our gin episode. By yes. the way, if you would like to learn more about the things that we talk about on our podcast or you would like to make suggestions, you can always send us a DM at LaidbackLush on Twitter or Instagram. I should have seen that coming, but I actually did not know where you were going with that for a second. It, it was actually a bit of a clumsy segue this time, but I, I'm okay with that. You know, and that's the darker side of podcasting, really, is just having to find those segues. Having to commodify yourself. Having to commodify. And the thing is, I really do enjoy talking with people, you know, yeah, especially like when it comes to these sorts of things. But going to the darker side of rum, yeah, another well, clumsy segue. Al already kind of dark, given its history, where it yeah. originated from. But then it got a little bit darker, actually. This is one of the worst things I have ever heard in the history of an alcohol, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Basically, after they discovered that they were making rum out of the byproduct, they were like, oh, well, let's see how we can uh, profit off of your intellectual property as slaves who have literally nothing else. And they went ahead and grabbed that. They started selling the raw molasses product to New England specifically in order to purchase more slaves. Yeah. So they literally were using rum from New England in order to purchase more slaves from Africa to come and do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. I have not heard of a darker thing. Yeah, it's pretty barbaric. You know, in, in this context, it's just like, this is this is literally awful. Yeah. So rum, actually, outside of just New England, and this is a little bit less dark, um, but in the Caribbean, it became a form of currency again among sailors. Sailors would accept payment in barrels of rum. Which a little bit better. Uh, if if you if we have a Patreon and you have decided that you uh, yeah tier tier five will be uh, send us barrels of barrels liquor. Of rum. <laughs> no, I love this for us actually. <laughs> we'll we'll just you know tap into it once every six months, see how it's developing. It'll be an yeah. experiment, you know, or yeah. or or use it for other purposes that we'll get into later <laughs> on in the episode. Oh Lord, oh God. Yeah, so it was accepted, especially by Dutch sailors, uh, in or as as a form of payment. Yeah, which is really just interesting. And uh, there is one term that is still in use today for rum, Nelson's blood, which mm. has an interesting story behind it. Uh, Michael, I think you had a little bit more details in your notes than I did. You want to tackle that one? So this didn't happen until a little bit later on. 
And there are a lot of different drinks that were being produced around the same time. So you did have like Blackstrap, which was rum mixed with molasses. You had Stonewall, which was mixed with cider. But this was just part of that process of it being popularized. And it ended up traveling the whole world all the way to Australia. So the, the legend goes that in a certain Admiral Nelson ended up being killed in the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. And they needed to be able to bury him because this guy was an admiral. You didn't exactly just let him go out to sea like you would other sailors. And even among like so like pirates, the whole reason why they had like golden rings in their ears and everything was actually for funeral costs. Yeah. So what they did instead was they decided, well, we can just preserve his body in the ship's (laughs) rum. So the legend goes. And so then they were like, oh, well, they were just kind of helping themselves to the rum during this very long voyage home. Yeah. So that's why rum is sometimes then referred to as Nelson's blood. Yes. Now, in truth, it wasn't actually rum. It was actually brandy. Yeah. So the story was true. It's just they got the spirit mixed up. Yeah. Well, you know, they were probably on some kind of buzz level that I cannot comprehend from that. So I can't blame them for maybe misspeaking a little bit. And, And the weird thing is just like, how would you not notice... And would you think, man, this is good brandy, well, or... if you think about it, though... Well, no, I guess because it was brandy. Because I was about to say, if they thought it was rum, since it was so strong back then, maybe they just thought, well, this is just how it's supposed to taste. But yeah. if it was brandy, yeah, not not as... You're not going to get away with as much uh, no. funky flavor in that. Yeah. This is funky fresh. Has elements of sternness and sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, that was just a very, very interesting little thing. Yeah. So the expression of rum can be very different depending on where it comes from and has many major different transformations. There is no universal control on rum, which makes it uh, very hard to pin down. Yeah. Like we said, though, it is typically made from a sugar product. It can be anywhere from 20 to 75% ABV. It can be spiced. It can be aged. It can be aged in different types of barrels, or it can be blended. So there's a lot of variance as people who are wanting to experiment with it have the freedom to do so without any sort of controlling body. Yeah. But the typical basic way that rum is going to be created is through that process of fermentation. And most of it is actually going to be present in the raw materials themselves. Mm -hmm. Molasses and ambient yeast. Yeah. This can last the initial uh, fermentation process. It can last from 24 hours up to about three weeks. And that length is going to determine the amount of uh, congeners and the flavor compounds. Yeah. The slower the process, typically, uh, at least from what I was reading, the more complex yeah. and rich that it has the the capability of being. Yeah, you're giving the yeast more time to break down compounds and for more reactions to take place for all these congeners and aromatic compounds to be released. And then, obviously, the inverse for shorter exactly. fermentation. Yeah. But then we also have how it's distilled itself. So specifically in Jamaica, Barbados, uh, Agricole, what are we sort of seeing as far as their preference, their method of distillation? Yeah, so uh, if you've heard about, you know, Jamaican rums being a little funky or whatever, that typically comes from the fact that they are commonly distilled in pot stills. 
again, it, it's not always a hard and fast rule. A lot of rums will be double distilled, so maybe they might start out in a column still and then move to a pot still. Um, but in general, a pot still, it's uh, kind of like scotch. It's going to give not as clean of a profile, yeah. leave some more funky compounds in there. Heavier, typically darker styles are going to be done in these pot stills. You can make cleaner, more refined stuff, typically just by throwing it into another, you know, distillation. But that's not typically the aim that they're going for in the yeah. first place. Usually for these kinds, so again, Jamaica, Barbados, and the rum agricoles, you're looking for some of that funkiness to stay intact from the yeah. molasses. And again, we are talking about what is typically in these areas exactly. because there are people who are going to experiment, especially if it's coming from like Australia. There is every type of distillation process that you can think of. Oh, yeah. I should probably mention, at least for my notes, I kind of kept it to the Caribbean area yeah. just for simplicity's sake more but than anything. this stuff is made all over the world. You yeah. have uh, Demerara, Guyana, um, you have Australia, there's New Zealand, there's the Americas. I actually just tried one from Florida. Like, <laughs> they're, they're all over the place. Yeah. So uh, we also do, though, uh, in Cuba... And the white rums in general that you tend to see, which we'll be getting into what a white rum is here in a second, you're typically going to be seeing your column distilled there. Yeah. And it, column stills are able to produce a much more cleaner and typically more neutral spirit. So these are going to be, again, for styles that you're not looking for a dense, heavy product. You're looking for something more light, something cleaner, something probably a little bit easier to mix into a cocktail. Yeah. Now, we've never actually gone into the specifics of what the difference between a coffee still or a, or a continuous still mm -hmm. and a pot still is. And I think yeah. it's important to understand as we're especially we're getting into this. Mm-hmm. Hello, dear listener. Gabe from the Editing Bay here. So when I was listening back to this portion of the episode, I noticed how we went about trying to discuss pot stills versus column stills got a little jumbled. So I wanted to give you guys something with a little bit more uh, clarity and uh, reasoning behind why these different methods are used for different kinds of rum. So let's get started. Pot stills. Pot stills are going to be pretty universally made of copper. They're going to be, think of like an upside down funnel or maybe roughly egg shaped. The shape of a pot still can vary pretty widely actually across the liquor industry. But for our purposes, just kind of think of something oblong with an arm coming out of the top. It's called a line arm, which will then go into some kind of collection vessel. And that line arm is where your distillate or the product of your distillation will condense down. The reason this is used for rum, particularly um, our rum agricoles and our darker styles of rum, is it's a single distillation, so it's not quite as refined as a column still is going to be able to get you. What that means in flavors is there's going to be more complexity, more aromatic compounds are going to end up in that final product. Copper is also very good for um, neutralizing sulfur compounds, so that's another reason copper is used here as well as being a good heat conductor. So when you put that fermented molasses into your pot still, you're going to warm it up from the bottom, and then things are going to start evaporating. And that's what's going to give you your final distillate. Now, a lot of the time, again, as I said earlier in the episode, a second distillation in a pot still will happen. This will just you know, further refine the distillate, get rid of any off compounds or flavors, 
and you know just kind of give it that extra tweaking that the distillate might need. As for our column stills, a column still, or sometimes called a continuous still because these can run continuously, it's going to be a tall cylinder, vertical, and it's going to have plates at different intervals along the length of the cylinder. And the vapors are going to rise up from the bottom of the still, obviously, where the heat source is. And it's going to go up through the middle. And at these different plates, it's going to condense and collect. And you can draw from each of these plates. So the higher up you go in the still, the more neutral and the more high alcohol content you're going to get. What that means is you're going to have a more neutral flavor as you travel up at different levels. So for rum, you're probably going to be pulling from somewhere around the middle to maybe the upper levels, depending on obviously what you're going for. But the reason this is used for, you know, a lot of white rums and the cleaner kind of Cuban style of rum is, as I said, you're not getting as much flavor in it as you go up in these stills. So if you're looking to make a cocktail mixing kind of spirit, that's great because you're going to have something that won't overwhelm the other flavors of a cocktail. So hopefully that kind of gives you guys an idea of why these different methods are used for different kinds of rum. So back to the episode and continuing on with barrels. So there are a lot of different things, like we said, that can determine the eventual profile. And one of them is also going to be barrel aging. There are so many people who experiment, but typically if you just have your regular oak barrels, they are going to be highly dependent on the climate and the size in how they end up impacting that flavor. Yeah. So I know you were sticking to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So we have heat and humidity. Yeah, these are, affecting. these will be consistent anywhere that rum is produced. Um, heat and humidity, they play a role in scotch production. Uh, anywhere you store your barrels, these are two very big factors that you have to consider. Because I know in Australia, they, they have the literal driest mm -hmm. state. They make rum there. And it just boosts that ABV because of how much of the liquid is just taken right on out of the barrel. Yes. So with a higher humidity, though, you do get a little bit more control on the ABV. So yeah, so uh, just for the record, uh, heat will draw out more water, typically leading to a higher ABV. And then humidity will draw out more alcohol, leading to um, typically a smoother flavor profile, uh, but at a lower ABV than you would with the same barrel were to go elsewhere. Like we mentioned in a lot of our wine episodes, you're getting that vanillin into it, mm -hmm. which is going to, of course, give you more of those vanilla overtones, and that's going to really help for those sugary elements inside of it, yeah. and even the grassy elements to kind of yeah, get a bit more smoothness. You'll extract, depending on how long the rum is in the barrel, you will also get some oak tannins. There are other aromatic compounds that you get out of the wood. In the Caribbean in particular, they normally don't go past, even for very dark styles, more than, I would say, three to five years because yeah. it is so hot that the barrel aging process, all that extraction happens very quickly compared yeah. to cooler places. Well, and they also, they don't like using new barrels either. Correct. They like yeah. using mm -hmm. used barrels. Particularly if they are using any kind of specific barrel bourbon and whiskey barrels. Yeah. Although yeah. I've also seen sherry being used. Yeah. But then we also have for that refinement, because 
color can be added into the rum from that. Caramel color in particular. Exactly. Which and, is the case for actually most dark rums across the world. Oh, yeah. And and a lot of dark rums, they'll actually even add caramel afterwards in order to amplify the taste. Yeah. It's considered kind of like a sprinkle of salt or, or you know, your finishing seasoning in order to bring out the flavor of the saccharum after everything is kind of coming together. But with white rums, you really want that color to be gone. So they'll mm-hmm. have activated charcoal that yeah. they filter it through in order to give it a cleaner taste. And that also will draw out that color. Yeah. Fun fact, you can actually do that with like cheaper vodkas through a charcoal filter and it'll make it much more smooth. So it it does a lot of things for the rum. So now that we're kind of talking about kinds of rum, let's maybe get a little bit more into these styles. Yeah. We were just talking about white rum, so might as well start there. And before we were even recording, we were talking about the fact that this is kind of like a weird thing because... A lot of times it's just separated into white and dark. Yeah. And that really does not capture the nuance. Yeah. So we're going to kind of be speaking a lot of generalities with these styles because they vary within these categories a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. So for white rum, it's, as we just said, it's supposed to be clear, lighter body. It is aged briefly, normally, like less than a year in barrel which is part of why they like to charcoal filter it often is to get rid of any color that might have come in from that barrel aging so because of that lighter body and you know the lack of color it's great for cocktail mixing yeah which is what white rum is commonly used for more than a sipping liquor then we also have it uh, usually around the 40 percent abv mark yeah then we move on to gold rums these are given the name from the color it's going to be a little bit more complex than a white rum from again longer barrel aging and no color correct well color correction to make it darker really if anything or to just provide a consistent color across uh, a producer's line these can be aged for a few years they're good for giving a richer rum profile to a cocktail. Again, these are not typically used as a sipping liquor. They are more focused in general as a cocktail yeah. spirit. They're just a little bit more expressive yeah. than, than your white rum. Then we move to dark rum. Now, this is where you kind of start getting into what people will actually sip on normally Uh, these are kind of your longest time in barrel normally out of all the rums it's going to have a fuller flavor profile than the previous two in general and this can be a bit of a nebulous term Um, a lot of times dark rum can apply to gold rum because it's just kind of a distinction for anything that's not a white rum in a lot of common parlance But uh, dark rum, when it's dark, dark rum, is typically considered to be more akin to like whiskey or something that you do want to kind of experience just by itself. So that's not normally going to be quite as much of a cocktail liquor. That is going to be more of your sipping style. Which brings us to aged rum. Yeah. Which, of course, the clue is in the name. This is going to be aged typically for a longer amount of time. Yeah. They might have aged it in something creative. Mm -hmm. uh, And it really will... It's going to be for sipping. It'll typically tell you on the bottle exactly how long it's been aged for. Yeah. And that's going to give you a lot of clues uh, as it to has complexity. To be. It, yeah. yeah. Illegally, it has to have an yeah. age statement. So it'll it'll tell you what it's 
what it's been aged for. And that really is going to be something that has some beautiful complexity. Typically, it's going to be really nice and rich. Yeah. might be a little funky. Mm-hmm. Um, and that grassiness is going to also be really refined if it's present. Yeah. Then we kind of move on to some. So these are our kind of general categories. So these going a little bit more specific, we have spiced rums. Which there's a lot of debate on whether or not spiced rum is worth buying because yeah. there's the whole thing where it's like, well, maybe you like the mix. Mm-hmm. Maybe you enjoy it. And then there's also, well, why would you sacrifice the control if you just wanted to get your own spices into something? Yeah. I mean, uh, we were talking about this before the episode. Like, I like Captain Morgan Silver. I'm not going to lie. Is it the best rum in the world? Absolutely not. But for what it is, it's fine in my opinion. Spiced rum just means that there is spice in the rum, some kind of spice. What that spice came from, it can be natural, it can be artificial. Like it, it's one of those things that, and this is where it does catch a lot of flack is you don't really know exactly what's in it. And exactly. you don't even always know if it was actual spices that were used or it could have just been flavored with stuff in general. Kind of the point is to give the simulation that it spent time in barrel when it didn't. Yeah. Which also kind of gives quality concerns to a lot of people. Um, but a lot of cocktails call for spice rums. And again, if you're going to get one, I would say get a cheaper one, especially because it probably is going to be put in a cocktail and you're not going to really need to have the best rum in the world exactly. anyway for that purpose. That's just my own opinion, at least. Yeah, no, I think that's perfectly valid. Then we have Demerara rum made from a cane grown in Guyana. This has typically a longer aging, very rich profile, uh, much like your Jamaican, and it is distilled using old stills, thought to be indicative of how rum used to taste. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of is throwback style. Exactly. So this is going to be more like that Kill Devil yeah. type of thing that that uh, rum bouillon. I haven't had a chance to ever try this. Style. I haven't either. I've heard a lot about it. Um, yeah, but I, I have yet to actually get my hands on some. Again, our selection here is not great. So next up, we have rum agricole, which is made from sugar cane juice rather than molasses. So this is one of the exceptions to that kind of rum is typically a molasses product. Yeah, I really like this form of rum. Yeah, it's really good. If you can get your hands on some, I would highly recommend it. So this came from the French controlled islands in the Caribbean because the French were also there as well as the British. And the Spaniards. You gotta love being able to trace style back to the brand of slave owner that it came from. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, explains a little bit too much of our history over here. But uh, anyway, so this is only distilled to around 70% ABV. That's not necessarily bottling strength in general. This does tend to be a lower bottling strength than a lot of other kinds of rum. The reason they distill it to a lower ABV is to, um, keep a lot of these more funky aromatic compounds mm-hmm. in rum agricole can be very grassy it is really good for showcasing the terroir that it came from and what i mean by that is where the sugar cane came from that was used to produce that particular rum agricole can really change the flavor profile from producer to producer which is interesting because Sugar itself, sugarcane, it's a form of grass. Yeah. It's in the same family as bamboo. It's in the same family as the stuff that's in your yard. So you don't really think about that as having such a heavy influence from its environment. Exactly. The more that you learn about any sort of product in this field, the more that you're like, no, everything is affecting it. Well, just think of those herbal notes that come in from, say, Sauvignon Blanc and how that varies from New Zealand to uh, the Loire Valley. Yeah. You know? 
Are we talking about the Loire Valley again? We are talking about the Loire Valley again. <laughs> I will always talk about the Loire Valley if I'm Apparently. given a chance. So uh, anyway, but uh, rum agricole does not have a set style. It can be white, gold, dark. It can have an age statement. It, like it, this is just kind of a general style. It's more about the raw materials than yeah. the actual finished rum itself. Because those, obviously, like we said earlier, those raw materials have a very direct impact on the end result. This is going to be rather vegetal. Again, grassy, even kind of almost like dirt aromas. Uh, I love it, personally. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but I would highly recommend at least trying a sample if one is available to you at some point in your drinking journey. We have Rum Blanc for Rum Agricole, which is aged up to six months. And then we have Rum View, which is aged more than three years. So if you see those two, either of those two labels on a bottle, that's what that means. Then we have Martinique. Martinique is interesting because it is the only geographic region in the world to have an AOC for rum. No other place that produces rum has an AOC attached to it. Which you would have thought that Jamaica would have one by now. Which, uh, again, that's uh, Appellation d'Origine Controlée, which means it's a legally designated producing area for rum. Again, which is weird, because you would have thought that Jamaica... You would think. Or Cuba, but any of them... Well, so a lot of the reason why the wine industry has AOCs is for reputational purposes. Exactly. Jamaica already has the reputation. They don't need to legally define it as much. And legally defining it kind of changes the nature of rum, right? Because then you have... Controls. Yeah, what production techniques are you or are you Control not allowed to do? Which some people might argue could help the quality of rum overall, but... Again, because so many rums are used in cocktail mixing, you might not be looking for super high quality to begin with. Yeah, and really the history of rum being kind of this rebellious thing yeah. that's just nebulously defined and really not given as much control. Yeah. It's kind of the defining thing about rum. So, exactly. So I can see that argument as well. Yeah. But uh, so saying all that to say Martinique is the only AOC for rum agricole and rum in general in the world. So... Then we move on to cachaça, which I personally love cachaça. Which was hilarious because I had some and I didn't realize how much that Gabe liked it. And then <laughs> I, I, I literally yelled at him. I yeah. think. <laughs> You're just like, you had cachaça and you didn't tell me? <laughs> I, was, geez, I didn't realize it was a thing like that. Like, yeah. So, uh, well, because it's very hard to find. Brazil does not export a lot of cachaça. The overwhelming majority, and I do mean overwhelming majority, is consumed within the country. Now... This is very grassy. Yeah. Cachaça is a Brazilian liquor. It is made from cane juice, like rum, agricole. It is usually unaged. Again, within the country, everybody kind of has their own spin on that. So that's not a hard and fast rule. Like a lot of what we've talked about tonight is not a hard and fast rule. But cachaça is known for having a very wild character. Similar similar to rum, agricole, but it's... um, it was almost tequila-like, actually. It was, yeah, it was strange. I was, I was actually going to say, it's more kind of like akin to me of mezcal is to tequila what yeah. cachaça is to rum, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you've tried those liquors, that hopefully will make sense to you, listener. Which gave it like a super... If you could think of if agave had a grassy cousin, yeah, that's exactly what it tasted like to me. Also, uh, typically, cachaça, at least in my experience, I've tried, again, very few, but it will have a very pronounced banana character to it that I find very interesting personally. Again, it can be difficult to find. 
it's not exported a whole lot, but if you can find it, I would recommend getting a bottle just if you like that more exploring yeah. the funkier side of liquor, give it a try. Just be aware you are this is you looking for a new experience. Yeah. Do not expect this to be like anything you've had. It's before. not gonna be Captain Morgan or Bacardi. <laughs> not even yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Then we have our overproof rum. So overproof means it's a minimum of 50% ABV. It's a lot like gin. It can kind of be any kind of rum, but it just is a higher proof of rum. We have in that category naval proof, which did come from the British Royal Navy. They used overproof rum as a way to keep it unspoiled for longer periods of time because obviously alcohol is a preservative, as we know. So even it, for bodies, even for bodies. So it, it kept away um, spoilage a lot easier if it was overproof that eventually started to get mixed with lime and it was called grog. And then we have what was called tot, which was the uh, one eighth of a pint daily ration for sailors at one point during the Royal Navy. And that term sometimes will still get thrown around for rum. So that's what that means if you come across it. And then we have our gunpowder rum, which is a minimum of 57% ABV. This came from British testing to test for overproof rums, where if you soaked a bullet, uh, well, at the time it would have been a um, pellet, really. Yeah. Not, a, not what we think of a bullet today, because they were still using muskets at the time. But uh, they would soak that in rum, and if the gunpowder could fire the gun... Or it fired the bullet out of the gun, I'll say. If, it, if you could still get that igniting of the gunpowder, then that meant that it was uh, high enough proof. And that proof is 57%. Which is interesting. That's actually where the term proof even comes from, is that they had different ways of determining mm-hmm. through fire. Yeah. Literally a trial by fire, whether or not uh, a type of spirit was not cut. Yes. So yeah, and those are those are our styles. Yep. And that is kind of a good overview of rum, hopefully. We didn't get too much in the countries because so many different countries. So many different countries and so many different styles even within those countries. If anything else, just kind of know that if you hear Jamaican, it's probably going to be a little bit more funky. Cuban styles tend to be a little bit more clean and probably what you're used to drinking, I would say. If you're familiar with Bacardi, you're probably familiar with Cuban style of rum. But there's also Venezuela, Trinidad, Mexico, Fiji, and they just keep going. Yeah, so we didn't really go into countries for that reason. We wanted to keep things fairly simple and more about if you can look at the color and kind of what's on the label, hopefully you're able to formulate an idea of what you're about to get out of that easier than if we just were to list off country styles. Precisely. But these are kind of some of the building blocks of how you can start to explore rum for yourself. And again, these can get into so many different flavors because you have rum that tastes like banana, it can taste like toffee, you can have those vegetal notes that come across as different things. Right now, we're actually even enjoying a rum. It is the Appleton Estate Signature from Jamaica. And at first, it didn't hit me like anything on the tongue. It kind of smelled like toffee, but then as it's kind of on the tongue, you get a little bit of that sugar cane, and then it's kind of like an oolong tea. So you can even get some of those grassy notes that hit in a very diverse, different way than you normally would uh, from other types. Yeah, I think rum is, uh, it has the potential to be very diverse very with all of these so. flavors. And no hate on Bacardi, but 
I would if you're only familiar with like Bacardi and Captain Morgan. Yeah, explore some explore, other things because they, there's a lot more out there than what they're putting out. And again, what not they even put out saying is, it's bad. Yeah, what they put out is, is solid, but it's very safe. And yeah. rum, rum is a big world, and I I would encourage you guys to you know explore a little bit, have some fun. Well, Gabe and I are going to probably go and have a lot of rum cocktails now. Uh, at <laughs> responsibly, responsibly, very responsibly. But all of that being said, uh, we do encourage you to please follow us at LaidBackLush on yes. Instagram and Twitter. We are thinking about new and bold ways to kind of engage you guys as a community. Tell us what you want. Exactly. Tell us, tell us what you would like to see. How, how can we engage you in a way that would be fun for you, would be fun for us? Uh, obviously, we're not going to take every suggestion that we get because that would be the exact way to drive ourselves crazy. <laughs> but we would love to just see how our community, as it develops, is kind of feeling. Did we have... We haven't talked about what we want to do for the next couple of episodes. Um, yeah, what do we want to do? Well, you know, we did talk about needing to redo that wine-making episode. Yes, we do need to do that. And I was kind of thinking we might want to separate white and red into kind of their own episodes okay. and can keep them shorter. Yeah, yeah, um, I like that. Because we've been actually been getting a lot of people listening to that episode recently. I guess people want to know about winemaking, and uh, that is not the note I want people anymore to be learning that information from. Literally, I tell people when they're like, "Oh, you have a podcast," I'm like, "Don't listen to like the first five episodes, please." <laughs> yeah, yeah, start with the prohibition episode, and then continue. Yeah, to listen. you can yeah. you can start there because that's where we kind of hit our stride. Yeah, but I would I would really like to redo the winemaking episodes because they're pretty foundational, and uh, we we have more listeners now too who might not have heard that episode so i think that'd be fun yeah no i think that that would be good so we can do like the winemaking episode and then move on to some other topics as well i really enjoyed the history episode yeah, i want to so. do some more history stuff too yeah so that's that's also where i'm kind of aiming but yeah shoot us a dm let us know what you guys are thinking um because ultimately this is for us this is also for you though yeah so anyways i have been michael i have been gabe we hope you've enjoyed and cheers. Cheers. <laughs>